Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to this edition of the What's Next podcast, where I'm really honored to have Ruchika Tulshian on the show today. She is an author, a keynote speaker, and founder of Candor, an inclusion strategy practice, a former international business journalist. She is now a regular contributor to the New York Times and Harvard Business Review. She is the author of a recent book, Inclusion on Purpose, an intersectional approach to creating a culture of belonging at work. But she's also a fellow Thinker 50 member. So it's an honor to have you on the show today. Tiffany, thanks so much. I'm so excited for this conversation. Me too. You know, I think that we have been through a crazy two years, depending on when you're listening to this podcast. Uh, We're in the beginning part of 2022. And I think the last couple of years have really exposed what might not have been happening in the workplace. Like we might have thought things were happening in the workplace, but they weren't really happening in the workplace. And here we are in, you know, depending on, right, the great resignation, the great, Mm -hmm. you know, attraction, whatever term you want to use. But I think it hasn't been even for everyone. So I'd love to hear from you kind of what got you to writing first, Inclusion on Purpose, but what this last two years has really highlighted for you. Wow. Thank you, Tiffany. What a big question. Um, And I'm always honored to present sort of my point of view on the last few years, because I, you know, as a journalist, as a former journalist, someone who cares deeply about history, we are living through a very historical once in a lifetime time in history. So for me to be able to sort of be able to look at it from the various different lenses and the way that I've been thinking about the world, it really is special to be able to comment. And so the last few years have actually been really very challenging for women and especially women of color and especially women of color. The more you sort of center marginalized voices, you know, if you're a single mother of color who also has disabilities, you have had a really disproportionately challenging time over the last two years. And it it was clear that this pandemic impacted people really differently. I remember as workplaces were shutting down in early 2020 here, March 2020 here in the United States, depending on where you're listening from, different times. You know, I remember when we were starting to shut down someone like myself with socioeconomic privilege, with college education privilege, it actually, in many ways, yes, it was stressful, but it was also like, wow, I get to work from home. Wow, I get to be, you know, spend more time with my family. I'm lucky to live in a house where there's space for us to socially distance from other people and also each other and also, you know, have have a good amount of space to get our work done. And again and again, the conversations I was having, though, again, with people who were marginalized in the workplace, women of color, women with other marginalized identities, it was clear that this was not the reality for everyone. And so one of the things that really drove me to write inclusion on purpose, what is interesting is the idea for the book came before the pandemic. And I was actually in the book proposal and shopping the book proposal through the pandemic, and especially right before the big movement for social justice, racial justice here in the United States. And so what what I had sort of envisioned is helping readers, helping audiences, managers, and leaders dip their toe into this work, right? Because I know that there has been a lot of division and a lot of I would say also a lot of hesitation and defensiveness to to look into inclusion in the workplace in a very meaningful way. 
And suddenly this pandemic happens. It is clear that there are huge disparities. Uh, you know, the movement for social justice and racial justice starts kicking off here in the United States and then the knock-on effect around the world. And it became clear, we cannot go back on this work and we need to double down harder than ever before. And I will say, and, and to sort of wrap this up, I will say that when I wrote Inclusion on Purpose, the book that I would have written had we not gone through a pandemic, had we not had the movement for racial justice, it would have been a very different book. So I'm really, really proud of it. I hope folks now understand how important the work around inclusion and belonging really is. Yeah, and you said something there um, about having kind of multiple kind of definitions or characteristics of who you are in, in when you show up at work. And when this all first happened and everything happened in the United States with George Floyd that kicked off all of those conversations around social justice, it was also this kind of acceleration of diversity of inclusion. I learned a new word, intersectionality. I never knew that word. Like I'd never actually heard that word used in the way it was used during this time that you might be a woman, a person of color, you might have a disability, you might be gay, you might be this, you might be that. You tie all those things together and that is you are discriminated against in some situations across three, four, or five different attributes, which to your point is this compounding effect of, I feel I'm not seen, I'm not heard, I'm not understood on one level, <laughs> let alone two, three, four, five. And I would say, you know, even my understanding and the things that Salesforce did in the first 12 months, uh, all the training, all the webinars, all the classes, all the things we did, while I wasn't like, oh yeah, I'm going to make time for this. When I got out the other end of it a year later, I realized how much I really didn't understand. Would you say that's a common sort of journey most have been on? So would you say, so let me, let me ask you a clarifying question. So would you say at the end of all the sort of training and learning you did, it didn't feel like you really understood until we were in this pandemic? Is, is that what I'm hearing? Well, I think it, it wasn't just the pandemic, right? It was like, it, it was that, and then it was the George Floyd incident. And then it was these conversations that were all happening. Absolutely. And it was little things like these microaggressions, like that I would say something without the intention by any stretch in my mind, that I was saying something that might be hurtful or harmful to someone. And then when I went through the training, I realized that it was insensitive and that I wasn't understanding its implications to the full effect. Yeah. I So my point of view, which, you know, I, I want to try and get the statistic in front of, you know, every person in America and hopefully many more folks will look at this globally and be able to assess themselves. But PRI Research finds published a study in 2015, which found that three quarters of white people in America don't have a single friend of color and 91% of the average white person's social network is white. So a lot of the decisions that we make about you know who we connect with, who's a culture fit on our team, who do we want to promote, who do we want to move forward in life, advance in their careers, are often based on this very this reality that often we have been socialized not to really interact with people 
who look different than us. And actually, the same research finds that for most of us, the first time we've really meaningfully interacted with someone beyond just sort of the cursory, you know, you sit next to me in class, but more really, really discussing things, really having a connection is in the workplace. That's the first time many of us have have really worked with someone who looks different than us. And so, of course, we're going to make mistakes. Of course, we're going to perpetuate these biased and exclusionary behaviors. Of course, we're going to do things wrong. Now, unfortunately, for so long, the focus has been, you know, my intentions were good. I didn't, I didn't, if, if you felt bad, you felt bad. I don't have any responsibility for it. I've done it so many times. And what what the framing now needs to be, and especially given the racial justice movement, especially given the time and history we're in right now, we cannot go back to those good intentions, right? We really now need to move forward towards understanding what is the impact, building the awareness, the empathy of what it's like when you wear multiple intersectional marginalized identities in the workplace. It could be your teammate, it could be your manager, it could be a senior leader, it could be someone you're interviewing for a job, but without having that awareness and empathy, we're not going to be able to make change. Yeah. And in, in my case, it was, you know, not to get too deep into sort of what happened to me over the sort of two years. Right. But I was born and raised in Hawaii. Wow. So I was the cultural minority. Right. Wow. So I was the one that looked different. But yet I had privilege, went to a private school. I lived in a good house. You know, my parents both had jobs. My mom was a teacher. My dad was a banker, you know, those kinds of things. But I still was the odd gal out. Like I was the only. So you understand that that's, you know, sorry to interrupt you, but you understand that is that, that feeling of what it's like to be an outsider of having to sort of weigh your options, like, should I say this? Should I not? Should I wear this? Should I not? Many of us do go through that on a daily basis in our workplaces. And we need folks with more privilege and power to understand and empathize with that. And the fact that you had a head start on that, you know, in your upbringing, that definitely informs, you know, the type of inclusive and empathetic leader that you are, Tiffany. Yeah. And, and I, and I, you know, like I said, I, I think, but it was interesting for me then when people would ask the question, how I frame up how I answered. And and that was a lot of learning for me, right? Because I'm like, I was, I was the mind. And people would look at me like, okay, but not really. Well, no, yeah. <laughs> I kind of was, right? But I was straddling these two worlds of privilege and being the minority. And so it, it was just, it was a very interesting personal journey for, you know, myself, um, but, you know, I think that they, the other thing that I noticed out of this was a lot of the conversations were very generalized on what is actually happening. So it's kind of like, okay, everybody needs to go work from home. Okay, well, what if they don't have high-speed internet? What if they don't have access to a computer at home? Okay, we're just going to shop from home. What if I don't have a credit card? You know, what, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So there's this very sort of decisions and this is the future of work is going to look like this and the future of education is going to look like that. And the future of healthcare is going to look like, you know, something else, the future of commerce. And then you miss the subtlety underneath that of what people don't actually have in order to live this new 
future that, like you said, we can't go back because now we know better, but there's a lot of infrastructural work that has to happen in order for this to continue to move forward. So what does that look like? Yeah, great point. And I think that really looks like more of us taking personal responsibility and accountability for making sure, especially for folks who are managing a team, working with others, constantly checking in. Do you have what you need? What 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 can I do to make sure that you have what you need? What can I do to be a more inclusive manager and leader? Those sorts of questions should really be asked regularly. And when you get feedback, taking action on it is really key. And I think kind of related to your earlier point about privilege and understanding, you know, sort of in which rooms you have influence and power and privilege, I, I think that's a very key part of building that awareness. And exactly like you, Tiffany, as we started getting into this pandemic, as I mentioned, you know, for me, actually for a while, it was a good thing. You know, I was actually really excited. I had all the technology. I do have high-speed internet. I was teaching at that time at Seattle University. And again, the disparities were very, very clear, right? I had certain students who had a great sort of big bedroom or whatever it is at their parents' house and you know could 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 easily log into classes and get their work done. Nobody's saying it wasn't hard for them. But then I had students who literally had to go into cafes and you know and take you know inordinate risk at that point to do that to be able to even log into my classes. And again, as a manager and leader, and as someone who in that moment obviously had privilege as as both the professor and as someone who you know actually had all the provisions to run my class from home. I really had to had to check my own privilege. I really had to look into that situation and say, okay, what are the accommodations I need to make? What are the things I need to do to ensure that all of my students are learning at the same level, or at least trying to reduce and remove some of those barriers for that? And I think that's something that we all needed to do. I think a lot of innovative leaders did. And that's what we need to continue on as we sort of emerge into this, whatever this new normal is going to look like. And so what would you say to people who are listening to this and they're like, look, I'm on a team, you know, and maybe it's just still a Zoom team that I'm looking at. Some people have never even met their team. You know, we're in that situation where they got hired during the pandemic. How can individuals go on their own journey, you know, as they look to say, let me check myself. What do I say? And, you know, I was, I was giving that example earlier when I said, you know, little microaggressions, I'll give you the exact example. I was interviewing Kim Scott on my podcast and she wrote the book Radical Candor and she has a new, another new book out. And we were talking about this very similar conversation. Mm. And I said, I'm so tired of being a slave to my calendar. That's what I said. Mm -hmm. And she checked me on it right away. Like just checked me on it right away. Mm. It, and it was a simple word. It was a simple word in my mind, simple word. Yeah. She checked me on it. Another white woman, right? Checking me on it. And mm -hmm. when she said it, it was from a place of, look, this is what I've learned. I can share it with you. Right. So I now no longer say that word and I'm a little more, you know, I, I, if I, I'm thinking I'm going to say it, I'm const I'm quickly looking for what yeah. else can I say in, in mm -hmm. replace of that. Mm -hmm. And so being an ally for the conversation as well. Mm. So I've found myself checking others. Mm. It's been interesting to see the response. Like either they're like, oh, I never thought about it that way. Or 
you're woke. It's ridiculous. Like you're being way too sensitive. Right. And I, I, it's a, it's a spectrum of responses. Mm -hmm. Um, how can individuals really step back and, and check their language to just start there? Mm -hmm. I think actually there certainly there is work we can all do to you know become more aware and part of it is consuming literature and books and resources out there that are from a wide variety of people right and I think the important work around this and I think what you and and you know what you and Kim sort of demonstrated in that moment is not that anyone no one is going to be perfect right Nobody's going to be perfect. I make mistakes all the time. Now, the important thing is rather than shoot for perfection, right? Shoot for progress, aim for progress. And the important thing in those moments is to understand that if someone offers you feedback and Kim Scott is the feedback person, right? Like the queen of good feedback, effective <laughs> feedback, right? And you know that she cares personally. That's why she said something to you in that moment. And I see it less as even checking you, but more offering it to you as an act of service and love. And I think that's something that has really changed my framing when I get called in, when I get, you know, when, when, when I'm given feedback on how I can be more inclusive, what is the language that I can use in a situation and what I could have said differently. Like one of the, one of the framings that I'm really known for is I started using it in my classes, then I tweeted it, then somehow it went viral. And I wrote, you know, the problem isn't, uh, you know, white men, the problem is white supremacy. The problem isn't, you know, men, the problem is patriarchy. The problem isn't, the problem isn't straight people, it's homophobia and heteronormativity. So don't let uh, individual defensiveness paralyze you from making systemic change, right? Something along those lines. And initially when I tweeted it, you know, it went really, you know, people were like, this is great. Thank you for the framing. I've always focused on the systems of oppression rather than, you know, individually trying to call out people. That's not who I am. But what 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 happened is, in fact, it wasn't even someone directly checking me on using the word paralyzed, right, which is ableist language. It was me hearing someone who does identify as a disabled person using it in a different context where they were like, oh, this person said paralyzed and it really like wasn't appropriate. You know, I and this person said, you know, I've I've actually been through a situation where I was paralyzed. So it, I really wish people wouldn't use, you know, things like decision paralysis or analysis paralysis and all of that because it's ableist language. And for me, my circuits went firing and I was like, oh, goodness, because I've been using that language for a very, very long time. Now, in those moments, there are two ways, right? You can either have what I call an inclusion mindset. So, a, you know, essentially a growth mindset towards inclusion where you say, I, I made a mistake. I'm going to grow from it. I'm going to learn from it. I'm going to make change. Or you can get defensive and say, well, I didn't mean it that way. My intentions were good. You know, I'm trying to make a point. The larger point is more important than the words that I use. So I think, again, we can go both ways. And part of it is building that awareness and having an inclusion mindset when we hear we could have done differently. Yeah. And that's that word paralyzed is like the word slave in that context. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And so, yeah, I would agree. I don't think, you know, she didn't check me in a bad way. I know Kim well enough to know well, that yeah. she did it from a place of love. Yes. But even something that simple. And so you have two choices also, I think delete the tweet or leave it up there. Right. Cause you could go, Oh, I don't want to offend. 
but that conversation is almost better than the tweet. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're right? You're so right. Well, you You're know, so right. what, what you, you say in, uh, in the book that inclusion is a job for everyone and not just HR. And I think this is this individual conversation, right? So as individuals, you know, sort of being more aware, like that example, we both just gave paralyze slave, those two words, try to pick a different word, not because, you know, you used it with a bad intention, but because it's received through the lens of whatever the realities are for the people hearing it. So if we move past that and we say, okay, if inclusion is for everyone, tweeted out this image where there's um, like six white guys sitting around the table, all with goatees, all wearing a green sweater, and the leader is sitting ahead of them and going, I think we have a culture problem. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> And so, you know, and that's not anything against white men with goatees and green sweaters. It's that if there's eight of them sitting around the table and it's only the same eight, that that's where the, that's where the challenge happens. Right. And so do you look around that Zoom call or the office as we get back and then you realize, wow, mm-hmm. I didn't even notice it maybe, or I, it was totally, un- what is the, how do you then step forward and go, I have realized this is the reality of my team. I'm a manager, I'm a director, I'm a leader, or I'm going out to hire now. There's been a ton, once again, the timing of this, we have a Supreme Court justice who's in front of trying to get nominated. And uh, that was a master class in communication. If none of you watched it, forget the content, just watch the communication style. Like it was a masterclass. But everyone was like, oh, but if you say we want to have a woman of color on the court, we already have a Latina, we'd like to have an African-American, is that exclusionary to other people? And how do you, uh, you know, navigate that? Yeah. Tiffany, I actually, um, you know, I was invited to talk to a New York Times reporter about the very specific way that Biden, when he was running, Joe Biden was running for president, he actually said clearly the next Supreme Court uh, nominee that I'm going to put forward is going to be a black woman. And I actually applaud that. And I really wish that this is something that more business leaders would do, because we need that level of intentionality to look around and look at who's missing and identify who's missing. Because I've been in too many rooms where folks say, we want more diversity. And what they mean by more diversity is kind of extending the this, this very visceral picture I can see in my mind of these you know, white men in their green sweaters and goatees is, oh, let's have a, a white man who's wearing a red sweater and no facial hair, right? And that's diversity for us. And so I think you have to be very deliberate. You have to be intentional back to this idea that many of us haven't been socialized to be around people who are different than us. We've not been socialized to talk about race and racism at work, sadly, because to me, that is the greatest barrier that I see right now. And I think the more of us really lean in and to to borrow that tired phrase, but really lean into that discomfort of, okay, Maybe I wasn't socialized to name who was missing, but I'm going to build that awareness now. And I'm actually going to say, here's who we don't have represented on our team. And here's why we want diversity, true representation, true diversity 
represented on our team. I think a lot of times we we lose the why, right? We just say, oh, diversity. Oh, other people are doing this. They've put out a statement. They've talked about how they're going to meet these targets. I want to rush and do that. But really be deliberate about who's missing. Be focused on who we need to bring with us, right? Who we need to bring for a seat at the table. And more than anything, start with the why. And there are really good reasons. There's innovation, there's growth, there's representation, there's the, there's the fact that there are a huge number of our employees today, a population of millennials in the workforce, who would take a pay cut to work for an organization that aligns with their values. So again, we're, there's no turning back now, right? People, especially during this great reimagination, resignation, whatever realignment, whatever word you want to use, we are again at this really important moment. And I think managers and leaders need to step up to the plate. Well, that's why your book is called Inclusion on Purpose. Right? So you have to be intentional, right? Um, what do you think about some conversations that are swirling around now of sort of removing the requirements of having so many, you know, let's say in education of how many applicants in certain demographics, you know, or how many people at work that setting those, you know, percentage standards by which everybody has to adhere to in order to get, let's say, federal grants or loans or whatever it might be, removing those at this point. I mean, it's it's definitely up for debate. And I, I don't know if we're far enough down this path to remove that, you know, that people are like, well, it should just happen naturally because the quote unquote, we're going to hire the best person for the job has ended up with a room of green sweaters. And, and, and I just don't believe that that is, that is, I'm not saying they're not the right person for the job and I'm not saying they're really good. I'm saying, did we look beyond your alumni list, right? Or your fraternity or sorority list? Because this is not just, we've talked a lot about men. This is not just about men. I mean, women, people of color, like everybody has plays a part in this in some way. And so what do you think about removing those requirements at this point in this journey? Yeah, I think it's a bad idea, right? And I think back to this concept of intentionality, you have to be really intentional. I think what has been very painful and hard to see in the conversation around things like affirmative action is not enough focus on why those those checklists or whatever it is need to exist, why we need to ensure that we have certain representation, because it really doesn't happen by design. A lot of us fall prey to our affinity bias, right? Exactly. I went to school with this person. This person reminds me of my younger self, so I'm going to hire them. You know, I want to I want to groom and sponsor this protege because they remind me of whom I was at that age and that stage of my career. And most of the times we pick people who have the same identities as us. So I think we overestimate the fact that we will make decisions fairly when based with, um, you know, with with a diverse slate of candidates or that a diverse slate of candidates would apply anyway. So I think we overestimate that those systems are working. They're not, right? Especially how we advertise jobs and all of that and the words we use, that's a longer conversation. But I also think we overestimate. In fact, we it's, it's wrong. Meritocracy is a myth, right? And we overestimate the idea that the playing field is level, here are the job requirements or here are the requirements for promotion. We can objectively go through this criteria and we can objectively select the right person. And again, we 
overestimate our ability to do that. And I think we need to be very intentional. And that's why I actually really believe in the importance of targets and representation. I agree. I mean, I think we're nowhere near a place where we can trust the process at this point. Um, both ways. I mean, both ways. No. And and once again, not men, not women, not not people of color, not Caucasian, not, you know, people who were born in the U.S., people who weren't born in the U.S., people without disabilities. With It's all up because we all have our own experiences. Yeah, right. So what do you think the future of DE&I and inclusion in the workplace actually is? Knowing everything we've learned if I were to say to you, okay, Ruchika, two years from now or three years from now, what would, wow, we've really made progress look like for you? Oh, great question. One is that we would believe stories more often. We wouldn't just only look for data. We wouldn't only look for the business case for why this needs to be done. It's a human rights issue. We have already started from you know a history around the world, and especially here in the United States, which has created a very, very unequal playing field. So good would look like us understanding that stories need to exist. It's not always about the data. It's definitely not all about the business case. Good would look like more leaders, people with privilege, talking about that, being very aware, like, hey, here's where the absence of impediments, this is what, um, you know, this fantastic organizational behavior leader, John Amaeki says that privilege is basically the absence of impediments, right? It's not your fault, but it is your responsibility to use that privilege wisely. And so more leaders and more people with actual socioeconomic, racial, gender privilege stepping up and saying, here's why I have blind spots. Here, here's why I have areas where I could improve and I'm going to make those changes and I'm going to take responsibility for it. Well, I think that is a great end to this fantastic conversation. I could keep going. I really enjoyed it. It felt like we were sitting across from each other, having a cup of tea and catching up. But unfortunately, we are across the cameras uh, in different parts of the country. But if you've enjoyed listening to this conversation, please go out and pick up a copy of Inclusion on Purpose, an intersectional approach to creating a culture of belonging at work. Ruchika, thank you so much for spending time with us here today on the What's Next podcast. How can people keep in touch with you and your work? Thank you, Tiffany. This was awesome. Well, the best way, honestly, would be I'd love your feedback on Inclusion on Purpose for everyone who's listening. If you get yourself a copy, please make sure you let me know what you think. You can reach me on my website, on Twitter, and it's essentially inclusiononpurpose.co. Inclusiononpurpose.co is the best way to reach out to me. So thank you. Excellent. Well, again, thank you so much. Thank you everybody for joining us. Make sure you share with your friends, subscribe, leave some feedback, and I'll look forward to having you join us the next time. Talk to you soon. <laughs>